Radio Land, Podcastville, and all of our LARB readers. My name is Eric Newman, and you're listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review Books. Joining me today is my co-host, Medea Ocher, the managing editor of LARB. Hi, Eric. Today we have Janice Rochelle Littlejohn, one of our senior editors at LARB, talking with poet Imani Tolliver. Tolliver's new collection, Runaway, is an autobiography written in poetry. Yeah, it sounds like a really interesting book. Imani Tolliver is actually a Cave Conum fellow, and we're also going to have another show with another Cave Conum fellow, so it's really an embarrassment of riches for us. Her name is Natalie Graham. We have two fantastic poets on the show. Absolutely, so stay tuned for that. But in the meantime, let's get to the interview with Imani Tolliver. Let's do it. Hello, this is Janice Rochelle Littlejohn. I'm a senior editor at Los Angeles Review of Books, and today we have with us Amani Tolliver. She's a poet, artist, and educator, and a Cave Canem Fellow. She served as Poet Laureate for the Watts Towers Arts Center. Tolliver is a recipient of the Avest Award for Literary Arts, the Howard University John J. Wright Literary Award, and the Lannan Literary Fellowship at Folger Shakespeare Library. She also has been recognized by the city of Los Angeles for her work as a promoter, host, and publicist in support of the literary arts in Southern California. Thank you for joining us today, Imani. Absolutely. Thank you for asking me. Well, we are here today because you have an exciting book coming out August 16th from the World Stage Press called Runaway. And it's a memoir in verse. And I must confess that I was going to just kind of let that one pass and go to the poetry editor. And then I read the first poem. And I would love it if you could read it for us. It's called These Hands, and it was just so beautiful, and it's kind of, you had me at these hands. Oh, that makes me happy. (laughs) Thank you, Janice. These Hands. My mother said my hair was like moss, difficult to comb into the pillow at the crown of my head. She melted it fine and pulled, pulled it free from itself, thousands of nooses without the knots. I cut the nooses free, gathered and twisted and curled and colored the knots, the forbidden, the embarrassing, the back door, the kitchen, into sun, agate, warm rum, fizzy Mexican Coca-Cola and North African oil with herbs at the bottom of wide, dolloped vases of warm glass, beginning as teardrops fallen now. I took the stories that made me out of the scream of my arrival, the vinyl and chrome couch of 1977, in front of the $6 million man and the bad news bears, the girl, the mushroom, tiny, hiding, hooded thing I was, touched I was, in the worst ways, eating tears, eating donuts, eating anything that would fill me into someone larger than I could imagine, into someone strong, into backbone and healer, into the visitor who would tell you all about yourself and herself too, into this body without children, except the one that I hold between my breasts, that I screamed into making, scream from between the lips that suffered, 
from between the lips that would not speak, the lips tasted by the lips that would taste hers. Scream, scream, scream. Now, these lips, curved, plentiful, tell and tell and tell. They were told to shut up a long time ago. The voice box, the brown and red voice box that came from two brown necks and two before that was called a white girl, an Oreo. Who are you trying to be, anyway? They told me the color of my voice before I had the language to fight back. They told me I wasn't one of them, far from who I thought I was. White girl, white girl, you trying to be a white girl. But all I knew was my mother's tongue. All I knew came from the Alice in Wonderland records that taught me how to read. I tried to abandon National Geographics and dictionaries, Pippi and the mysteries and the magazines for a language that was more acceptable. My mother tongue was a tattoo that I modified but never abandoned. I read aloud listening to the nuances I've created, the resonance that burnishes the girl voice with tobacco and thyme, rum and crying into this voice you hear now that sings when no one's looking to Jesus and lovers I trust. I'm looking below my knees now, and there are scars. I've decided to turn the clusters and stripes into constellations. I will have the scars, no, the stars, Make an order, make something larger than me or my shins into Orion, Zeus, Mars, and Leo. Take what shame tried to make into your hands and turn it into something else. Change your color to your wish into something new, something of your own making. Perhaps you will be as proud as I when a new friend remarks to your mother, You gave birth to Imani? No. She gave birth to herself. That ending is just, I'm having a little bit of a <laughs> verklempt moment. <laughs> the act of screaming into making really is thematic throughout the whole memoir. Can you talk a little bit about how this memoir in verse came to be, how you chose to select these particular poems because there's a lot of you trying to give voice to your past self, but also to your present. That's a great question. You know, I had been working on, you know, Capital Letters, the book, for, for a long time, and it has taken many different incarnations, and that was always the challenge. You know, it's not as difficult figuring out maybe a couple of poems to put together for a publication or for a reading, but to put together an entire book, that was always the biggest challenge. And so I found myself a few years ago really being compelled to read memoir. It was very strange. I just could not stop reading memoirs, just one after the other after the other. And I think because, of course, my poetry is about myself and the lens through which I see the world, I think of that quote by Audre Lorde, your silence will not protect you. Mm. And my silence never protected me. What created new space was my speaking, right? So that, 
it was as if those so many of the stories, so many of the things that I wanted to sort of push away and say, oh, that happened to me when I was a kid, and I would think I could just sort of shrug them away. All those survival stories, so many survival stories. And I found that this book, I call it a book, but it's really, you know, my body. It's my story. <laughs> they say right. your body of work. I think it was the first time I've ever really understood that. Mm. So it is personal. And I feel like it's definitely reflective, especially the poem I just read. It's really about speaking and giving light to the things that I have kept as shame in my body. Mm -hmm. And I think my own path just as a human being is recognizing that there was no shame that I had. There's no shame in the experiences that I endured mm -hmm. and there is no shame in loving Pippi Longstocking. <laughs> I loved Pippi Longstocking. <laughs> and you know, it's interesting that in talking about how you birthed yourself and talking about the pain, you talk a lot about the rape that you endured and I was wondering if you could share a little bit about how you find voice and find yourself after something so painful and something that happened with someone so close to you. If you could expound upon that a little bit. So how do I find my way out of it? Yeah. How do you find your voice out of it? Because mm. there was so much silence well, underneath it all. And, yeah. and you talk about it in a lot of the poems. And Well, I found... You know, it was funny because I found it was interesting. It wasn't until I moved out of Los Angeles and went to Howard, and I was there for maybe a semester, maybe mm -hmm. a semester and a half. And, you know, I hear these stories from writers sometimes, but I am never the one to, like, come out of my sleep to write anything. <laughs> you know, I really love to sleep. So, <laughs> so, but I remember I was in school, and I just woke up in the middle of the night. And all of a sudden, these words came to me, maybe because I was not home mm -hmm. anymore. I was in an environment that was completely new, yet on some sort of spiritual way, felt very familiar to mm -hmm. me. It felt like, oh, I'm, I understand this, because my family's all from the East Coast. My aunt, who had passed, went to Howard. And so my family was all up and down those streets before I had even stepped off the plane. Okay. So I just came to a point where I just could not be silent anymore. I felt like... I just could not stop writing about what I was experiencing. And what I think what was so healing for me, it wasn't just that I was uh, reading these poems, these rough, not the poems in the book, but at the time, sort of these very rough, raw pieces mm -hmm. that writers like Sapphire and Michelle T. Clinton helped to give me the courage to write because they were writing and publishing poetry and stories that I couldn't even admit that I was the rage that I was feeling. It was mm. just, I was just enraged. And so I would read these poems and what helped me and what kept bringing me back to all these different open mics and all these places that I read were men and women who came up to me and thanked me for my courage and said to me, I experienced the same thing. Mm. And I started to learn that the more that I shared, the more I realized that I wasn't alone. For the longest time, I felt like, oh, I was the only one. I was the only one on the block. I was the only one in the family. Mm. I was the only one of anyone I knew. Mm -hmm. And the more I read, even now, the more I know that's not, that's not the case. Does it feel courageous when you look back at having written these things and are now open about your life and who you are and even coming out 
do those kinds of things feel courageous to you? You know, they do. They feel, well, there comes a point I feel like, it came a point for me in my own authenticity. I was so sick of being afraid. Mm. I was sick of, you know, sort of buying into, at the time, this sort of, for example, okay, so in the 90s, it wasn't cool to be black and to be a feminist. <laughs> it, I remember that. You remember that? <laughs> it was not cool. It's right. barely cool now. Right. Thank God for Black Lives Matter, <laughs> right. the name that was, you know, created by two black queer women, actually. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't cool to be a feminist. It wasn't cool to be gay. I mean, those are the things that white people did, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so... And I just thought to myself, I've endured so much and knew that there were so many other people who endured what I did who did not survive it. Either they took their own life, you know, and I know that I had been suicidal for a long time, you know. I always felt like at the time that was always like kind of like my back door because I thought, well, if it's not that bad, I can always just leave, you know. Mm -hmm. And I thought... You know, I just did not want to do that anymore. I was so tired of being afraid. I was afraid since I was a little, little, little girl. Mm-hmm. And I just reached a point where I thought, you know, it's true. My silence won't protect me. It didn't protect me then. I was told to be quiet. I was told to not tell. My father would say, this is our secret. You know, don't tell mommy. You know, mm-hmm. like I say in one of my poems, it was so cliche, so stupid, but right. so true. Right. So I think, Janice, you know, I just reached a point where I just thought enough is enough. Someone else was the author of my life, and I'm going to be the author of my own. Mm-hmm. I'm going to try. I'm just going to try it. And then when you went to Howard, that was kind of the incubation period for what you would then bring back to the world stage. Or was that after or was that before? It was in tandem. Okay. Yeah, yeah, it was in tandem. So I think the first, I went to Howard in 1992, and I believe that was the same year that the world stage was founded, right around that time. Mm -hmm. And so sort of every sort of break, every time I was able to be home for the summers or for winter break, I would always be at the world stage. And what happened was is that the world stage was such a and is such a welcoming and warm space. I always felt so protected and so lifted. So many of the toughest poems I've ever written, I read at that stage, at the world stage. Poems that I could barely look up from my journal. Like I hadn't even, I'd edited them, but I hadn't like even typed them up. They were just hard to even look at. But then when I'd go back and forth in D.C., like that's how I learned, even though I was learning some craft at the world stage, I feel like I was really learning courage. I learned that I was, that there's a whole beautiful chorus of people who had my back. And I feel that way wherever I read. Mm -hmm. All of these beautiful hands are holding my back. And so when I was in D.C., and we get into those fights with our poet colleagues and comrades as we do, (laughs) you know, it was a lot more intense. It was different. And um, it wasn't, you know, being at Howard, there was this whole class thing that I had encountered almost never growing up in L.A. I encountered the Oreo problem, but I'd never encountered, (laughs) oh, you from Howard. Like, that was a bad thing. Because anytime I would tell people here in L.A. that I was, oh, I'm going away to Howard. Oh, that's wonderful. Go and you do that and come back and tell us what you learned. And when I got to D.C., I didn't recognize all the ways, how many infinite ways black people can divide and rank ourselves, whether it's the way we speak, where we're from, 
our hair, our skin, our parents. And I experienced a lot of that right on campus, as well as the community. Because I didn't, you know, they say, you know, now when you talk about in D.C., you say the hill. You know, we know it as Capitol Hill. But back in the day, I was told it was Howard Hill, because Howard sits on a hill. So there definitely was that Du Boisian, talented 10th thing going on. And I used to hear people say who were from D.C., my friends, they would say, oh, you can always tell a Howard student no matter where you are in town. I was like, come on. Like, you know, D.C. is over 80, 80 some odd percent black. I mean, how can you really tell? Well, it wasn't until I moved out of the dorm. (laughs) I moved into my own place. I shared, you know, a house with a bunch of people. And then I started to see it. There was a different way that Howard people, generally speaking, would kind of hold themselves I don't think it was an elitist way. I think it was a way that was saying, I believe in myself. What I love so much about Howard, in my experience, was that not only did the Howard students believe in themselves, they believe in black people. They believe in our brilliance all over the world. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour, coming to you from Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. And now for this week's book recommendation. We are lucky enough to have Danzi Senna back in the studio with us. Danzi is the author of New People, which came out on August 1st. Danzi is here to give us a book recommendation. Danzi, what is the book that you're going to be recommending today? I'm going to recommend Elena Ferrante's The Lost Daughter, which is only 125 pages. And it's one of these three very short novels she wrote before the Neapolitan novels. And I feel like people don't read these novels of hers, but these are my favorites. And they hit upon all the themes of kind of disturbed and disturbing women that I love so much. And this is in particularly great because it's about a mother who has done a lot of sort of bad mothering and goes on a holiday alone and ends up becoming sort of doing something very wrong to a child. Oh. <laughs> it sounds really bad, and, and it's really good in the way that really bad things can be really good. It's a sort of terrifying novel, and it's so short, but she does so much work in terms of female identity in this book, and it's so economical and strange. It's just a beautiful work. And what drew you to it rather than the, the longer work? Well, these came before, and I read them before, the ones that everyone's read, I think. I had a harder time with the Neapolitan novels and really didn't get pulled into to those in the same way. And I tend to really, I don't know if it's the older I get, the more I love, I love short novels. And if a writer can tell the story in a shorter amount of pages, I'm, I sort of really love the white space and what the white space does for a novel. And the Neapolitan novels felt like I didn't get that breath around mm-hmm. it that made for these interesting question marks that I felt in these shorter novels of hers. Those are warmer novels and these are colder novels. And I, I love sort of coldness in novels about women. Oh, that so, sounds so interesting. Yeah, it's really interesting. Book. Do you have another example of a cold novel or a novel that you consider cold um, rather than warm? Well, I mean, we were talking about Quicksand by Nella Larson and her novels. I think maybe cold is one way to describe it, but 
non-redemptive is another way. And I tend to really like books that leave you with problems mm-hmm. and that the book doesn't solve for you, where the characters sort of, that novel as well, there's this feeling of the character's not quite right and she's not getting what she wants and she's not giving what she wants. And I think of those as kind of rebellious from a certain kind of expectation of female novelists. Mm -hmm. And I love that Elena Ferrante does that in these books, these short novels of hers. Have you ever read Villette? It's by Charlotte Bronte. Yes. I believe that is the the Bronte I'm thinking thinking of. How many years ago was that? And I think a cold, unsentimental novel, if I've ever read one, particularly about a main female character. It's like the older I get and the more I get more sort of sentimental about real people, the less I want that in my novels. Like, I want to keep those things really separate. And I I find myself resisting when I start a novel. If I see that bleeding into it, I really resist it. Okay. Will you tell us again the title of of the book and the author? This is Elena Ferrante's The Lost Daughter. Thank you so much, Danzi. Thank you. We've been speaking with Danzi Senna, author of New People, which came out on August 1st. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, and now we return to Janice Rochelle Littlejohn's interview with Imani Tolliver, author of Runaway. That's amazing because it's ironic that the last three interviews that I've done for LARB Radio have been Howard graduates, and they've all been poets, Peter Harris, uh, Douglas Kearney, and yourself. What is it, and you're a native, and Douglas is New York and grew up in Altadena, Pasadena area, and Peter is from D.C., but you all have kind of had this D.C., L.A. connection. How do you relate to those other poets, and do you feel like there's a certain Howard vibe that's different from other Black poets that you are interacting with here in Los Angeles? Well, First of all, I, I actually I have a poem about Peter in my book. Uh, that's right. That's right. <laughs> I met Peter when I was visiting at home for Christmas, mm-hmm. and I was at the World Stage. I was on Degnan Avenue, and I was right, right there, Degnan Boulevard, and I was right in front of the World Stage. And he introduced himself to me, and he was the only one in the audience who kind of had a call and response to me when I, as I was reading my poetry. And mm-hmm. that's something that just generally speaking does not happen out here in L.A., but it happens all the time in D.C., and I love that. It happens in New York, too, where it's a kinetic experience, and it's an exchange. It's not a one-way conversation. It's church. Yeah, it's church. It's church. Church. And so with Peter, you know, we knew the same folks, you know. So he said, oh, is so-and-so there? And I was like, oh, yeah, so-and-so was there. And Ethelbert Miller, you know, at the time was running the Resource Center, the African-American Resource Center there at Howard and then Doug and I were just hanging out in the yard together in front of fine arts <laughs> um, with Yona Harvey and, you know, Ta-Nehisi Coates was there at the same time. And um, it was like this, I'll put it to you this way, probably what makes our experience so unique is that I remember there would be times, let's say, when the entire class maybe wouldn't do as well on a quiz or a test or something that the professor wanted. Mm-hmm. You know, God help you if that professor was also a Howard alum, <laughs> because it would be so, so, so hard on you. Oh <laughs> With love, but wow. 
So we would get these lectures from mm-hmm. time to time, and the professors would stop. They were clearly disappointed when it would happen. It didn't happen often, but when it would happen. And they would say, do you know who you are? You are the best and the brightest. In this moment you're experiencing right now, doesn't have anything to do with you. It's about the people that will come behind you. So do your best. Don't buy into what this culture has tried to tell you who you are. Mm. You are the best and the brightest. So it has a way of um, that too stays with me. It's that belief in who we are. Mm-hmm. I remember there was this Associated Writing Programs conference that um, I went to with a lot of Writers' Corps alumni. And um, I remember August Wilson was the guest speaker. Mm-hmm. And um, DC was amazing in that you could just walk up to these writers. You would see them, Walter Mosley, be walking down the street. Um, you could go to an amazing reading and Toni Morrison was right there, you know, Cornel West, they're all around you. Mm -hmm. Um, And they came to DC, they came to Howard specifically, right? So the nickname is called the Mecca because you're walking across this, you know, campus. There's Maya Angelou, there's, you know, Andrew (laughs) Young, you know, whatever, I'm trying to eat my chicken wings, you know, it's like after a while you just got used to it, you know? And um, I don't know, I think it was just um, to see so many, what I remember what's so different about Howard is that you don't realize, for me anyway, I didn't realize what I was, what I didn't have until I got there. Mm. I hadn't walked into a building that was named after black people necessarily. (laughs) Where's your class, Dubman Hall? Where do you live, uh, Tubman? Uh, You know, you just lock hall, Mm. you know? Mm. You realize that... um, I remember one moment where I was uh, in the library. I was in the undergraduate library. And I was walk- looking at this court, just walking around. Classes hadn't even started really yet. And I was just trying to get a lay of the land. And, mm-hmm. you know, I grew up in L.A. where I loved the library. But I was often the only black person in the library. Or maybe there were two or three black people in the library. It was an unusual thing. Okay. And I remember walking in the uh, undergraduate library, and there was this corridor, right? So to the right and left of me were all these study rooms that were separated by these glass windows. So I could stand at the the, the front of the corridor, and I could see to my right and my left students in varying sort of poses, poses of, you know, sort of writing on these dry erase boards. Some were studying by themselves. Some were sort of debating something. I couldn't hear them, but I could see them. Mm-hmm. And... Um, And I just started to cry, you know? I thought, you know, I'd never seen that before. Mm -hmm. I'd never seen that many black people in the library at once. Mm -hmm. And I certainly had never seen anything like that before. Mm -hmm. So I think that for me, I feel like it, certainly you learn a lot. Certainly there's a threshing and you become new again. There's an education that you receive on campus. And there's another one that you receive by participating in the community. I had this an, a really wonderful professor, Dr. John Woodson, and he taught our b- black poetry class. Mm. And again, you know, he would sort of chew us out. You know, we get chewed <laughs> out. <laughs> so he'd say, you know, you students, you know, you just get on the, um, you just get on the, um, your shuttle from your, from your, from your, you know, your housing and you just come to class, then you just go to your little parties, and you just go back home. What you need to do, you're in a world-class city. The world comes here. You need to fold in and participate. So I always remembered that, and so I always did. So the Smithsonian's are free, and at that right. AWP conference, I met, you know, August Wilson. And I said to him, 
I said, what? I asked him, I said, I was, uh, I said, I'm trying to write, I'm trying to write a play. <laughs> but I can't write a play. I'm, I, I'm a poet. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, I used to be a poet. And I said, you did? <laughs> and he said, yeah, I used to wear these. And he was very sweet. You know, mm-hmm. he always had these really formidable pictures, but he was mm-hmm. very sweet and had a lot of light about him and mm-hmm. smiled a lot and laughed. And he said, um, yeah, you know, he said, I used to walk around. I had those uh, sweaters with the patches on the sh- uh, elbows, <laughs> and I smoked pipes, and I was terrible at it. <laughs> and I said, well, how do you write a play? Like, how do you even do that? I said, because I'm trying to write this play, and I can't write it. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, you always have one person who knows the whole story. You have one person who knows everything. And he said, the people in the audience are just as much a part of what's happening on the play as the actors on the stage. I always remembered that. And so, like, when just going back to Peter and his call and response or, you know, seeing Sweet Honey in the Rock at Howard and seeing people throw money on the stage and just wave their hands about, mm. it's a kinetic experience, you know? It's a, it's a conversation. So maybe we learn, Douglas, Peter, and I, if mm-hmm. I could speak for them, maybe we just were there because we already love black people. Maybe when we graduate, we learn how much we love ourselves, and how much we want to tell others. There's so much love in the collection, um, and I was and and you have a poem about Beth, who is your wife. Can you talk about writing something that intimate um, about someone that's still here? Because a lot of the other poems, some of the people aren't here, and even the poem about Peter. There's so much power in the in in the words could you talk a little bit about talking about Beth well I'd love to um you know it's funny I think that for me I know and probably other poets too you know you get this feeling where sort of the most intense feelings you feel are when you're feeling sad or blue or contemplative or angry and I wanted to be able to write just as intently about happiness you know, you sort of somehow we get the message that writing about something when we're happy is corny, you know, <laughs> but uh, I don't so think, beautiful. yeah, I don't think it's corny at all. Yeah. And um, I love poems that celebrate love. That's one of the reasons why I love two of my favorite poets are E. e. Cummings and Pablo Neruda. Mm-hmm. You know, I love the way Pablo Neruda writes about love. Mm-hmm. And for me, Loving myself, being able to love and receive love, to come out, to be, as Audre Lorde calls the, you know, the black unicorn that I am. It was really important to me to be able to celebrate our love. Mm -hmm. And it was an important gift that I wanted to give Beth to write that poem. I wrote that for her. Mm -hmm. And um, it is very intimate because it's right now. You know, it's not like something that happened 15 years ago or Mm -hmm. this crush I had or this thing that happened. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important to, I mean, for people, no matter what race they are, to be out. It's important to not be ashamed of our love, to show that our love um, is beautiful and just as anyone else's Mm -hmm. and just as deep and um, just as important. Mm -hmm. And so I really wanted to include that poem to celebrate Mm -hmm. um, the love that we share. What were some of the challenges? Because I know some of the poems that are featured are older or have been you've been working on them for a number of years versus something that are maybe newer. And how did how did you pull the collection together 
into one whole. Well, that was a challenge, right? Because some of the poems at the begin when I the first draft of which like there were 25 years ago. Mm-hmm. So I write very different differently than I did then. So the challenge was for me to keep the voice, the integrity of the voice of those poems. But then what I think is really cool (laughs) is that uh, because the poems are in chronological order, more or less, Mm -hmm. um, because it's a memoir, right? So it reads like a story in that way. Um, You know, I edited them to sort of make sure that they can stand beside the poems that I feel that are the most crafted. So I just tried to clean them up uh, the best way I could without losing the voice uh, mm-hmm. without losing that particular essence that they had for me then. Mm-hmm. So is these hands that starts it, is that something that is newer or is that um, an old? middle, a middle. Really? Yeah, okay. middle, but more, more newer. I'd say I probably wrote this probably about 10 years ago. Okay. And then over time, you know, with poets, you know how we are as writers, we we clip, we add, we move, you know. There, are, They say, I can't remember who said this, but they say there's no such thing as a finished poem but an abandoned one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wanted to talk about it. The, the interesting thing is, is that I think I'm rediscovering poetry post-college, post-grad school in a way that I'm open to new voices in, in poetry that are really powerful and, and strong and speak to me in ways that I, you know, haven't had since Nikki Giovanni, you know. And I'm wondering, is there some kind of renaissance going on? And where do you find your work in this kind of, or is, I guess, is there a renaissance? And where do you see yourself in in the mix, I guess? You know, I'm not sure if there's a, it seems as if there's one. It seems like there's a movement now. And I think that it's, multi it has many layers right it feels like with mo- new media now with there are there's a, such a huge audience now for podcasts um with social media absolutely i feel in those ways i feel like so many of these writers have been writing all along and they've been publishing all along but i feel that the forum is larger mm-hmm. so we're able to share you know it used to be that poetry had a very small audience um what's interesting now is that poets are doing many things you know they're not only writing poetry they're also writing prose maybe they have podcasts maybe they're having readings that are not solely at tiny storefront places or galleries or universities they're reading to a much broader audience mm-hmm. and i think with an organization like Cave Canem, um, I think that now they have up to, I think, around 500 alumni who've, you know, passed through, who've been fellows. So, mm-hmm. and they're everywhere. And that's phenomenal. Right? So they're in corporate, <laughs> like for me, I work for Parks and Recreation, you know, I produce uh, community theater and festivals and I bring poetry to that work. There mm-hmm. are people that I know who are professors at Cave Canem who bring it, you know, bring that energy there. I mean, I think that it enables you to know when you're in those kinds of nurturing environments to know that there is an audience, believe that there is an audience, you know, and that mm-hmm. people will people will hear you. They say, you know, build the tracks and the train will come. Right. And I feel like that's, I hope that's what's happening. I, th- I hope that people are turning more, I don't think people are abandoning books the way they say. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And I feel like there's a lot more ways to experience literature. So maybe that's the renaissance we're feeling now. Well, talking about um, poets doing other things, the World Stage Press is run by poets and writers. Um, Can you talk about why you decided? um, You've had a history with the World Stage Press, but your work could go anywhere. Why World Stage Press? Well, yeah, it's true. I've been published in a lot of different places, um, but... You know, the World Stage Press, Connie Williams, the wonderful, wonderful Connie Williams uh, of the World Stage Press, also a poet, approached me and he said, you know what, we're starting this press and we really want to create this. And we really want you to be one of, you know, the the voices that represents the Anansi Writers Workshop, which is the poetry wing of the World Stage. And of course, to that, I'm absolutely honored, as I shared, you know, the World Stage has always, the community has always been such a beautiful beautiful embrace, their family. And so, you know, after Connie spoke to me about that, I could think of no other place. Where, why would I go any other place? Um, they believe in me and believe in my work. Um, they're proud of me. They've seen me grow. Mm-hmm. And so if I can be a part of the story that helps to grow the world stage press in terms of awareness, I mean, with this book and this memoir, I'm I'm really hoping for a global conversation, mm-hmm. and I hope to bring the world stage press right along there with me, right along with me. Does it feel like a homecoming, in a sense? It does. You know, uh, the days are gone that I'm able to go every Wednesday night and stay till eleven o'clock at night, and then <laughs> afterwards we all go to Michael Datcher's house and we listen to Bob Marley and we eat. You know, and I right. can't go you know, till midnight. You know, I, I just can't get there as often as I used to. You know, mm-hmm. I used to live right down the street. Now I don't, and so it feels beautiful that I've got this reading uh, coming up. The opening is coming up, and. Uh, reading after reading after reading. So yeah, it does feel like a homecoming. It feels like a reunion. So when is the reading going to be? All the details are on World Stage Press and ImaniTolliver.com. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming in. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. You've been listening to Janice Rochelle Littlejohn interviewing Imani Tolliver about her new collection, Runaway. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. And if you like the show, leave us a review and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is Ernesto Oleano. Our researcher is Chloe Chap. Production assistant from William Broaden, Eleanor Duke, and Jake Levins. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who's no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College. Tom Lutz is the editor-in-chief and publisher of the Los Angeles Review of Books. Thank you.